Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Bielenson Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so happy to have with us Jeff Sackman, an author and software developer who has worked in the field of sports statistics and is also the creator of Tennis Abstract. Jeff recently came up with a list of 128 best tennis players of all time, which is a combination of both men and women. And as we know, my co-host is one of the great historians of the game and Steve Flink. We cannot wait to get into this list with Jeff. It is our privilege to welcome to the courtside with Beelins and Tennis Pod, Jeff Sackman. Jeff, thanks for uh, spending time and, and going over your background and also this list that you compiled. That is no uh, small feat, what you tried to accomplish there. No, and I know Steve can tell you all about it. I should probably defer to him on any questions of tennis history, but I'm, yeah. I'm a guest, so I have to pretend like I'm an expert. <laughs> That's good advice. So before we dive into the, the 128 list, um, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your background. Did you grow up playing sports? How did you become involved in, in statistics? We know you do, you do statistical analysis stuff on sports beyond just tennis, baseball specifically as well. Um, give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, I played um, baseball and tennis growing up and I was okay. I wasn't great. Um, got into some other stuff and eventually I, I sort of followed the wave into sabermetrics in baseball when Moneyball came out and people started doing all that stuff. And I started a website that uh, broke down minor league baseball statistics and a fan of that site who became a friend, um, he proposed doing the same thing for college baseball. So we did that and turned it into a business, which is what I've been doing for almost 20 years now, 15, 16 years. Um, we sell college baseball data to major league baseball teams. And that's my day job. And about a decade ago, um, I had gotten a little burned out on the baseball stuff and um, thought I'd you know, go back to tennis. I was playing a lot of tennis in those days. And I wanted to try some statistical analysis on tennis, see what was out there. Um, and I discovered there wasn't much. I mean, this is 2010 we're talking about. So the, the live score sites for betters like that, that wasn't really out there that much. A lot of the sites that we use every day either didn't exist or existed only in a sort of preliminary form. The ATP and WTA websites were um, more frustrating than they are these days. So I wanted a database. I wanted some analytics. And it seemed like for the most part, if that was going to happen, I needed to do it myself. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. And that's what Tennis Abstract is. is it's kind of the website that I, I wish I had found when I was Googling around in 2010 or 2011. And my my model is always the the amazing baseball sites and baseball research that's been done, like like baseballreference.com. Any any baseball fan like has baseball reference baseball slash dot reference dot com um, ingrained in their fingers because they type it so often. And I mean, if I can be like one percent of that website, then you know that's a dream come true. It's just such amazing stuff that's out there, and we're getting there with tennis. I mean, it's it's, it's a baby 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 steps, but um, but we're making a little progress towards that goal. And the website is simply tennisabstract.com. And you can get uh, a lot of the information that, that we're going to talk about today with Jeff. Um, Steve, anything preliminary before we dive into um, Jeff's creation of the 128 list of his parameters, how he came up with his method, or should we dive right into it? Well, no, I, I just would want Jeff to explain a bit because I learned a bit about it just by reading his pieces and looking at his rankings and having spoken to him on the phone and email once or twice, that you have this ELO system. You have a system. I want the listeners 
today to get a, a gauge on how, how you went about that system, because obviously that was the key to the, the whole project. It wasn't you making a judgment call as a tennis diehard, you know, a great observer of the sport or someone delving into the history, but you had a system that you followed that it resulted in your 128. Explain how that system worked and how you were able to combine men and women and be fair to both, both the men's and women's games. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't have even dared to make a judgment call this deep. I mean, it, once you get past the top 10 or 20 in tennis history, it's, it's really hard um, if you're going purely on judgment. So one of the things that Tennis Abstract has gotten kind of known for is the tennis ELO ratings. And, and ELO ratings have been around for chess for a half, half a century now. And the 538 website has popularized ELO ratings for other sports, and I've implemented them for tennis. A few other people have implemented them for tennis as well. And the idea with ELO ratings is you reward players for who they play and how they play against them. Uh, it doesn't work like the ATP or WTA rankings. It doesn't give more credit for beating Nadal at the Australian Open rather than beating Nadal at Acapulco. If you beat Nadal, you beat Nadal, period. You get the same amount of points for that. Um, you don't get more credit because it's the semifinals instead of the first round. Like it's about who you play and whether you win or lose. That's it. And all my research has borne out the fact that that's what's important. I mean, if you want to predict future results, you care more about who you've beaten and who you who you lost to, not when it happened. So with that in mind, I built a database of the entire last 100 plus years of tennis history, men's and women's, and came up with a, a peak ELO rating for every player and a year-end ELO rating for every season for every player. And from there, you can do a bunch of stuff. Um, what I wanted to do with this list was, this is again something I borrow from baseball researchers, is to try to balance peak performance with career-long longevity type performance. So someone like Maureen Connolly was amazing, but only for a few years. And then there's some other players like Conchita Martinez, who you don't think of as amazing because she didn't have that just incredible like little Mo or Steffi Graf type peak, but was really, really good for a long time. So what my the way my algorithm handled all that was to have three components. One was peak ELO, just how good was the player at their very, very best. Second, their whole career. So every season that they topped a certain threshold, give them credit for every single one of those seasons. The third component was their best seven years, sort of, sort of a halfway between those two. And then I converted every one of those three ratings into a percentile score. So for Steffi Graf, it was like 99.9 percentile in, in peak and 97th percentile for career. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but you get the idea. And once you have those numbers in percentile terms, you can compare men and women directly. So obviously, you, I mean, you've got to turn it into numbers somehow. You can't make a judgment call of labor versus graph or Emerson versus Novotna or whatever. But what you can do is, is convert them into numbers and just, you know, turn it into, into a list. So that's what I did. Um, so when I say that, you know, Monica Sellis is number 11 and Bjorn Borg is number 12, that's what I mean. I'm saying Sellis is a tiny bit stronger relative to all other women than Bjorn Borg is relative to all other men. I'm not pretending like I can make any direct comparison between the two, but I think that's a fair way of doing it in a way of reflecting the fact that tennis history has always um, mixed the genders more than other sports. And that's one of the rewarding and often fun things about it. Did you consider, Jeff, at the outset, maybe breaking it down to 64 men, 64 women uh, for, you, for your 128? Obviously, it would have been very difficult, I suppose, to 
do 128 for each. Was that something you gave thought, uh, serious thought to, or were you determined to to mix the men and the women? Uh, you know, I didn't think about it as much before I started as I have since. This is one of the most common things people have asked me about or larded. It didn't even really cross my mind. It was it it was obvious to me that this is how I wanted to do it. So I, uh, it took me a lot. Did you lose me? No, we're going to continue on. Okay. Um, my list was based on Joe Posnanski, the sports writer's baseball 100. And I thought I'd do a tennis 100, but then that felt like ripping him off a little bit. So then I do a tennis 101. Or then I was thinking a tennis 108, since that'd be like a set score of 10-8 in the fifth. Then I was like, that's dumb. No one will get that. And then I got to 128. It's like, well, that's a lot of work, but hey, 128 is a good tennis number. It's a good math number too. So here we are. And the, the, the other thing, like I say, I've, I've thought about it more since I finished than I did when I started. Let's um again kudos to you for even trying to do this. I, I I appreciate you explaining the objective criteria. Steve and I were were looking at the list and we were talking a, a few things. We could spend you know hours on on a bunch of these. Um, there were there were two or three specifically that I'd like to focus on, and one being someone near and dear to to Steve's heart is, is Pete Samper. Steve wrote the book. Pete Sampras' greatness revisited the 14 slams. When we looked at this list, we noticed that Yvonne Lendl was 20 and Pete Sampras was 21. Um, I, I, I know you've talked about this with others. I would be surprised if that order was not brought up to you, how that came to be. Um, I think on its face, most people would say he has had a better career than Yvonne Lendl. So why don't you go ahead and, and I'll let Steve obviously chime in. Steve is super close to this subject matter. Um, talk about that ranking with Yvonne being 20 and Pete being 21. Well, there's a few things going on. One is that so much of Sampras' reputation is based on his, his, his slam count. I mean, deservedly so. I mean, he targeted those Wimbledon and U.S. Open titles and he did it. So, I mean, kudos to him. And I should just say, I mean, before I, before I explain the pros and cons of both, like I, I don't love being in the position of saying, well, this is why he's lower than you think. Like if somebody's on this list, I mean, obviously it's in the title, oh. they're one of the greatest players of all time. I mean, and it, it should be a compliment. So I'm, I'm not, I don't want to rip on anybody. Um, so what Sampras doesn't have that a lot of the guys above him and specifically Lendl has was, um, was success on clay. And what that turns into as the algorithm sees it is a huge chunk of the season that he wasn't winning. Uh, And Lendl had that a little bit. We know he struggled on grass, but Lendl had seasons where he, I mean, basically it was one match at Wimbledon that he lost. And that was about it. I mean, he had some just outrageous seasons. And one of the things that really stands out about the top 10 and most of the top 20 people on this list is if you look at their, look at their career record season by season, they're going to have a chunk of season somewhere in their career where they lose like four matches a year or six matches a year, something just like you can't even really fathom it. And Sampras didn't have that that much. I mean, not again, not taking anything away from what he did accomplish, but he never had a string of just unbeatable seasons. And a big part of that was because of the surface. So I'm sure you could come up with an algorithm that would reward people more for performance on their best surface specifically. And there's a lot of algorithms you could generate that would put Pete higher, no question. Um, 
but mine, the way I constructed it rewards all around performance more than, than having a single surface or two where you excel. And that's the difference. I mean, it, it's super, super close 20 versus 21, 50 versus 51 on this list. I mean, they're basically tied, but if, if you have to boil it down to one thing, it's the fact that Lendl had those all, all surface, just ridiculous dominant seasons. So it's Steve? interesting. I, it, you know, I, you, you, I, you had a very set criteria, very clear system in mind. And obviously you didn't, there wasn't a question of any emotional attachment to any player. You just let the information fall where it did. But I, obviously somebody listening to you now would say, but wait a minute, Lendl never won Wimbledon. You know, Lendl was certainly not a, a, regarded as one of the great grass court players, or they would say, how can John McEnroe with a record like his, even though it was a phenomenal doubles record and a very good, great singles record too, be also ahead of Pete. People are, are going to look at these things, but you're, you're saying that you, maybe just go into a little more detail, not just about Sampras versus Lendl or Sampras versus McEnroe, or any of those, how, much weight, for instance, did you put on the slams? How much weight did it matter? For instance, Sampras was number one for six years in a row, setting a record. Did did players' ability to be at the top of the sport for long periods did that way into the system? People get a better gauge because some some of the there'll be some surprising play. There are some surprises. You said to me on the phone. You know, a lot of people were jarred by Rafael Nadal at number eight. That seemed really low for him. And obviously Pete being where he is. So explain that some of a little more detail about the information itself and, and how it was weighted. Yeah, you know, the things you mentioned that are sort of the stock in trade debates. I, I literally ignored them. So slam count, I ignored it. Weeks at number one, ignored it. Not part of it at all. Now, that if you win a slam, I mean, Sampras did it so many times. He won seven matches in a row, many of them against very good players. So since I am using ELO ratings exclusively, that helps his ELO rating a ton. I mean, there's nothing better you can do at a slam for your for any kind of rating than win all the matches. So he did that and it works out great. And if you look at the, what would happen if you just line up players by how many slams they won or how much time they spent at number one, uh, obviously there's some, but the idea is purely go by match results. So if you won, you know, 30 matches in your career at Queens Club against a certain set of 30 players, that's worth exactly the same amount as winning the same 30 matches against the same 30 opponents at Wimbledon. No difference. And I... I get that we've been trained from an early age to treat Wimbledon and Queens Club like different things. I, I mean, I watch them like different things. I know players approach them as different things, but all my research says that if somebody wins those 30 matches at Wimbledon versus winning those 30 matches at Queens Club, the predictions you make about how well they play in the future are identical. They should be identical. If you're betting on the matches, they should be identical. And what that means to me is I'm trying to rate how good they were at tennis, not how much they racked up the right trophies or had the, you know, we're in the position for the most prominent press conferences or appearances on Letterman or whatever. And to me, that means Queens Club stacks up with Wimbledon. I mean, that it's, it's a weird thing to say. And I know people will disagree with that even more than some of the, the rankings that I have. But ultimately, it's all about stripping away the round numbers, stripping away the tournaments 
and just treating it like a list of matches where you beat the players you beat and you lost the players you lost to the players you lost to. And that gives you a ranking. And that's interesting, Jeff, though, because I mean, I think everyone would say that certain players um, put more emphasis on certain tournaments. That's obvious. That's not anything novel. But in your case, you strip that entirely out. Yeah, players absolutely focus on the slams. We they've written it, they've said it. We all know they do. Um, and if that, so we know that's true. But what I'm what I'm aiming for again is to look at who was playing the best tennis at I mean the most part of the time. And if it were true that play that it were effective for players to focus on the slams more, there would be certain players who outperform at slams consistently. Right. And we know there are there are a handful of players who have better resumes at slams than otherwise, like Stan Wawrinka. Um, but there are very very few players who you can say this is a this is a slam plus player. Like this is the kind of guy where you can just count on him to do better at a slam than other tournaments. You can count on him to do worse away from slams. We might know that it's true for Stan, maybe. But if you look at every player in the history of tennis, there's so few players like that, that they look like statistical outliers. We can't treat that as a reliable statistical signal. So what that means to me is, I don't want to say Stan got lucky. Luck is a super, super loaded word, but you can't look at a guy and say, he won a couple slams, but he only won one master's title or something. You can't look at that and say, that's because he focused really hard. That's because he really cared about slams more than the other players really cared about slams. So if I had to have a theory as to why that is, is that everybody's raising their game for the slams. So if Nadal and Medvedev play each other in Australia in the final, and then they play each other a month later in Acapulco, maybe they both are trying harder. Maybe they both are better prepared in Australia, but they're better prepared to the same amount. So Mm -hmm. what that means in the long run is that Acapulco match actually does tell you as much about how they play relative to each other, how good they are relative to each other than the Australian matches. I can see you shaking your head. I know. Yeah, no, it's the, it's, it's not the Medvedev Nadal match in Acapulco. It's the, someone who's lower ranked than Medvedev who's super fired up to play Nadal in Acapulco. And Rafa just, for example, won the Australian and he's tired and blah, 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 blah. And this guy top 50 is all fired up. This is his Super Bowl, right? This is, the Super Bowl. So he's going to be extra fired up at an event like that where Rafa may, and Rafa's a bad example because he tries everywhere, but we're just hypothetically giving an example. Um, I, I don't know if they're trying as much or trying as equal. And I asked Steve the same thing at those lower level events where a guy a little bit lower ranked, that's, that is their Super Bowl whenever they play a Novak, a Fed or, or a Rafa. They just don't win very often, though. That's the thing. I mean, I, I agree. Like, they're, they're definitely trying, but they, it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you'd see it more, I think, the further back in history you go. So I and what I've noticed, this is something I'm going to figure out how to write about, is when you get to a certain level of greatness, um, every loss has a reason or an excuse or something. So if you think about Nadal's career, like, and excuse is another loaded word. I'm not saying their excuse right. is like a bad thing, but if you talk to an Nadal fan and you go through a list of every one of his career losses, that fan can tell you why he lost mm-hmm. every one. And some of them will sound like excuses. Some of them will sound like bad luck, whatever. He has so few losses and there's such big news that we think we know why. Same thing with Fed, with Djokovic, with every great player. I was right. just going through newspaper clippings about Rod Laver in 1962. And there are ex- news reporters in 1962 when, when Laver lost in the quarterfinals of the tournament, it was the exact same thing. It was like 
what happened, Rod? I mean, how did you possibly lose this one? You won, you know, 27 straight before this. What happened? And there was a reason. He had played too much tennis or he was jet lagged. Like a, a serious Rod Laver fan has an excuse for every one of those. And again, there's so few. So those guys who are having their Super Bowl, it, they win sometimes. I think it kind of comes out in the wash. The very best players of all time, they all lose those matches occasionally. Uh, we think we know why. Uh, a Nadal fan might say that, you know, Nadal's losses like that are more unlucky or more because of guys coming out firing than Djokovic's were. I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't even venture a, an estimate about that. But um, but we have a lot of stories to explain individual matches, but those stories often don't stand up when we try to come up with overarching theories that will explain every player or every era. So I, I do, and, and I, we want to mention a, a couple more of these, um, but I think having your background, having listened to your background now, I think I understand specifically why you have someone like Boris Becker at 32, Andre Agassi at 38. Obviously, Agassi has the eight slams. He has the Olympics. He has the career slam. He's 10, 10 and four versus Boris head to head. Um, but again, he had some bad years, and that obviously weighed into um, – the the algorithm that that you created is that is that explain that 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 placement of those two players yeah that that's part of it and agassi i mean i was i was surprised too when when the the rankings came out the way they did and when i started digging into his record it's really surprising looking at who his slam finals were against i mean he he had some great matches against pete he got some wins against pete but if you look at his slam finals they're not a really impressive collection i mean he didn't he win one against uh, arnold clamont I mean, there's a few pretty weak ones. And again, I mean, I hate even veering into the territory of seeming like I'm trying to tear down Andre Agassi because it's freaking Andre Agassi here. Of course, he's amazing. (laughs) He's one of the 35, 36 best players of all time. 38, I guess. Let's say top 40. Um, Amazing player, maybe under different circumstances. Maybe if the the drugs hadn't been around for him to sample, then maybe he would have been top 20. He definitely could have been. But I mean, the way things panned out, a lot of the wins that we remember as padding those career totals, the, the really amazing moments, um, they weren't against the strongest possible competition. And that that's the difference between 38 and 28. That, and and I mean, you're not doing that. The, you're not when you say Boris is 32, Agassi is 38. You're not looking at that head to head because Agassi beat him 10 right. to four. I mean, he owned him. He had one bad loss against him at Wimbledon. But again, you're looking at a much bigger body of work than just head to head. So you can't isolate that and say, Boris is 32, Agassi's 38, because he's better than Agassi head to head. You right. can't. And it's not, it's also not going to work. Like you're going to have places where, you know, player A is better than player B, player B is better than player C, but player C is better than player A. I mean, you can't, you can't turn tennis history into a ladder. Um, and yeah, like you say, like the, these players, almost all of them have a thousand career matches. Rod Laver has 2000 career matches. So those 14, Agassi versus Becker, they're, they're more important than a random grouping of 14 you pick out for sure. But they're still just 14 out of a thousand. So, I mean, it, it, even if you weight them 10 times as much as the average match, it's still a pretty small part of the calculation for these guys. So Jeff, I want to pass. Oh, go ahead, Steve. Sorry. That, that brings an interesting thought to mind. You know, everybody looking at the trio, to, the iconic trio today of Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal. And it looks like uh, unless there's a bunch more matches with Rap, where Rapa beats Novak a few times on clay and manages to edge ahead of him for their careers, that Djokovic will end up with a winning record right now, 30-29 against Rafa and 27-23 against Roger. Those statistics 
that you didn't weigh that in when you were looking at this, that really wasn't a part of your thinking at all, was it? Based on what you're saying now about Becker versus Agassi, the fact that Djokovic might end up or probably will end up with a winning record against his two chief rivals would not weigh into the equation if you were doing this same thing for just this era. If you're ranked, if it wasn't a 128 of all time, but it was top 10 of the Djokovic, Federer, Nadal era, as an example, head to head would not, would be insignificant to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those matches kind of go in the soup like any other matches. And obviously, like the way Elo works, if Djokovic beats Nadal, Nadal's one of the best players around. If every time Djokovic gets one of those wins, he gets a lot of points for it, just like Nadal gets a lot of points for beating Djokovic. But another factor there is it's the same thing with the slam count right now. They're pretty small margins. I mean, 30 to 29, 23 slams to 22 to 20 or whatever we're at at any given time. To me, like, Thinking of it in about in terms of stat categories that aren't so so much in the headlines, those are basically rounding errors. I mean, I know that's that's sacrilege. Someone who really cares about the the slam total of the Nadal Djokovic head to head, but thirty twenty nine that's a tie. I mean, come on. I mean, I, I get that that goes on the Hall of Fame plaque, and there's a lot of bragging rights involved. But if you're trying to rate how good a player is compared to another player, thirty to twenty nine is a tie. Twenty three slams to twenty two slams, or twenty one to twenty. That's a tie. I mean, I think to Steve's point too, Jeff, that you can't put the head to head in isolation, but indirectly it plays a big factor because these guys are beating each other in late, late, late stages, often semis and finals of the slam. So while you don't isolate it head to head um, indirectly in your algo, it does affect it because the fact is they're playing each other in semis and finals of slams. Absolutely. I mean, and the, the fact is they're playing each other a ton. So I, I was saying with, with Becker and Agassi, it's 14 matches out of a thousand. Well, Djokovic and Nadal, it's 60 matches out of a thousand or 1200 or whatever. I mean, it's still not a huge number, but they are, they do count for more as a, in, on a weighted basis. And that starts to add up to something. I mean, 60 matches is a lot, whether it's against Djokovic or somebody else. So, I mean, Absolutely. That has a that has a lot to do with the numbers they ended up with. Um, it just doesn't matter a lot whether it's 3029 or 2930 or 3128. It's all it's all pretty much a, a big vote that says these guys are all really good and they're pretty close to each other in the rankings. I want to pass the next topic off to Steve because um we'll talk about Steffi at two, Martina at three, Serena at six, because I can promise you, I've known Steve for a while now. He hasn't done any of the algorithm stuff that you have done in your system, Jeff. But it's interesting to me in that in conversations with Steve, along with our conversation with Chris Yabert, Steve's order of that is somewhat similar to what you have. He did not automatically appoint Serena as the greatest of all time when you're talking about Martina and Steffi. And Steve, I'll pass it on to you. Jeff, I, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know how much... I, how much of that podcast you heard, but it was interesting discussion we had with Chrissy regarding Serena versus Steffi and Martina. And she made the case that's, and, and some people look at it this way, Serena at her best beats anybody, you know, when she was at her very best, I can't see anybody beating her. She didn't come out and say that that necessarily made Serena the greatest of all time, but it was a, it was a case of sorts. And uh, it, yet obviously Others look at it. I, I tend to look at it more toward the weight of the record, the historical record, what they've achieved across their entire career 
Martina going five years and losing 14 matches to me was astounding from 82 to 86, 70 out of 84 titles. Steffi having many similar seasons, winning the Grand Slam, which Serena didn't do. So I found it very interesting that that your tables turned up the way they did, because, as you know, when Serena retired and played the U.S. Open and every match she walked out on the court, they announced her as the greatest of all time. Uh, It's hard to kind of get away from that because it's always the great player right in front of us now that must be the greatest of all time. I understand all that. But what I found interesting was you, 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 it, 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 it was similar to the way I think and the way a lot of experts think very close between Graf and Navratilova with Graf perhaps getting the nod and then Serena behind them. So how, talk about the, these factors from your end. I'm looking at it from the standpoint of experts or great players or uh, uh, thinkers and how they evaluate, evaluate it in a, in a big picture thinking. Talk about it from your standpoint of your system, why why it did come out that way with Graf, Navratilova, and Williams. Yeah, one of the one of the biggest things is what you already mentioned, those just amazing runs at Steppi's peak and Martina's peak, where they they basically didn't lose. I mean, it's just it, it's just unreal the 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 years they strung together where they're losing just two or three matches. And I mean, Serena had some great seasons too. She's right up there, which is why she's number three among women on the list. Um the difference, though, that that surprised me a lot when I started working on this list, and I, I really dug into it to make sure I wasn't doing the math wrong or had had some buggy data in there somewhere, is how strong the late '80s, early mid '90s era for women came out. I and mean, if you look at the at the rest of the list, it's it, that's a lot of the big surprises. So I've got Conchita Martinez in the top fifty, and I mean, some people think I'm completely off my rocker for having Conchita that high, or having Gabriela Sabatini with her less than impressive slam record at number thirty one. People think I'm equally off my rocker there. And if you put that all together, what I'm really saying is that era that Steffi was dominating that was an incredible era, and I think a a lot of people who were there or people who were growing up then and, and remember Steffi dominating the field, they've concluded from what they remember that it was a weak era, that Steffi was so good because there wasn't strong competition. And that is not what I turned up at all. So a big difference between Martina, Steffi, and Serena is that Steffi had her peak at the beginning, perhaps, of a very strong era. Martina, I mean, some of those years in the early mid-80s were not that strong, but much of Martina's career, of course, her 80 matches against Chrissy, I mean, just yeah, incredibly difficult competition. And Serena had her had her rivals, but not quite up there. So, I mean, it, even if you say their records are identical, which they aren't quite, but even if we stipulate their records are identical, uh, my numbers say Steffi did it against the toughest competition. Martina did it against slightly easier competition and Serena did it against easier competition still. Uh, and the, that's Let not me stop you there, Jeff. How do you objectify? Uh, so like, okay, I think everyone's in agreement. Martina and Chrissy, they were making the semis and finals of every tournament they played. I think we're all in agreement with that, but how do you say, and this isn't to agree, disagreeing with you. This is just a question. How do you say that Steffi's era was tougher than Serena's era? Maybe Serena, maybe Serena's era was amazing. Serena was just that much better. Like, how do you how do you classify that and say the body of work was tougher competition when Steffi was playing versus Serena? It's tough. Um, 
it's and it's even tougher for me to explain. So I'm going to try. <laughs> I, I'm not great at communicating this, but a good way to think about it is that every every two consecutive seasons have a lot of overlap, right? I mean, it's mostly the same players, but there's some differences, right? I mean, one one year, a couple of years ago, Carlos Alcaraz showed up, and suddenly the field was a little tougher, or Federer leaves, and the field is a little easier. So what you can do is take the players from say. 2018, who also played in 2019, and see how they do in those two years. I mean, you should adjust for their age because the ones who are getting older, uh, they should do a little worse. The one or the ones who are approaching retirement, they'll do a little worse. The ones who are approaching their peak will do a little better. But in general, the same group of players in two consecutive years, you'd expect them to play the same way. They're the same players, right? But they don't quite. And the reason why at least one reason why is because the field they're playing against is just a little bit different. One year might have Federer, one year might have young Alcaraz, one year might have none of the above. So for every set of two consecutive seasons, you can say, okay, the people who came back for the next year, they're a little better in year two, or they're a little better, they're a little worse in year two. And if they're a little better in year two, that means the era is just a little bit weaker. Um, and if you if you do that for every two seasons or all of tennis history, then you get this, you know, up and down sort of a wave where sometimes the era is getting stronger, sometimes it's getting weaker. And what you get is this bulge in the Steffi era. It's just unbelievable that somehow you end up with Kachina Martinez as one of the top 50 players of all time. Uh, and. I realize, like I said, I realize people think I'm off my rocker that maybe there's an algorithm that would give you different results. But mine is pretty clear that if you look at those year to year comparisons, those are the years that were the toughest for those same players to continue competing at the same level. So the few players who did like Sabatini and Conchita and, of course, Steffi Graf, um, that's why they come out so high is because that era does look so strong. That's yeah, that's well, interesting. Sorry, David. Sorry. One of the things that struck me. Jeff, that I really did like was the balance of the eras, not only the balance of men and women, but the eras. And for instance, Tennis Channel did, as you know, about 10 years before you, they, they did a list. There were many similarities. I mean, they had Federer, Labor, Graf, Navratilova, Sampras as the top five. So four of those top five were the same as yours. And Chrissy was nine on your list, nine on their list, as an example. Um, but what I liked the most about yours was that you had Tilden at number seven and Helen Wills Moody at, at, at 10. So two of the great players of 20s heading in and 30s, the dominant figures of American tennis and the worldwide game are in your top 10, which was not the case with Tennis Channel, which weighted more on the modern players. Talk about how that came about, how you evaluated the information, because you're talking about difficulty of errors. There's no doubt in my mind that they belong there but on the other hand, the competition was not the same from top to bottom in the 20s and 30s, as, as was the case decades down the road. So explain how you think they turned up in the top 10, which I think is terrific. Yeah, I mean, mostly it's just the, the algorithm I've been talking about and that that's how it shook out. I mean, when I started doing ELO ratings for earlier eras, the tricky thing with ELO ratings is when a new player enters the um, enters a tour, let's say somebody plays their first pro match, then we have to give them a rating. We don't know anything about them. So in, in ELO terms, we typically give them a rating of 1500. doesn't matter what the number is, but we give them a sort of arbitrary rating. Now, if you go back to the beginning of tennis history, or let's just say 1920, 1919, after World War I, 
the average person showing up for their first tournament is very different than someone showing up for their first pro tournament now. I mean, someone showing up for their first, even if it's like qualies at an ITF Sharm Al Sheikh, like that person's way more prepared than someone showing up and, you know, who happens to belong to the local club at, you know, the Gypsy Club in London where the Wimbledon warm-up was held. So, I mean, it, it, you you can't treat every everyone in all eras as being equal. So what I did is I I did a lot of a lot of testing and a lot of math to figure out what that level should be. And I came up with a, a much lower level. So I mean the number that somebody starts with if they suddenly appear on tour in 1919 is way, way, way lower than the number that someone starts with when they show up at, like I say, ITF qualities now. Uh, but what it does is it gives you ELO ratings that are stable throughout history. So if, if by adding the years 1920 to 1970, I don't end up changing the ratings now, or I don't end up having, you know, Bill Tilden look like a scrub or look, have Bill Tilden look like, you know, an, an incredible tennis machine, a thousand points better than anyone else. And I, I, I designed it specifically the way I did so that all of tennis history was, was roughly equal subject to those era fluctuations I was talking about. And to me, I think that's the only way you can do this. If, you, if you're going to do 100 years of tennis history, yes, there's some differences in eras, but you can't just say, I mean, the beginning was not that great. And just like you would never do a baseball ranking and say, well, I mean, Babe Ruth was a great and all, but baseball wasn't that good in the 20s. We've learned a lot since then. So let's let's knock Babe down to number 38. I mean, that's that's crazy. You can't do that. So I mean, to me, it's the same thing. Like if I had come up with a list and Tilden and Wills and Longland were all outside the top 40, like I think I would have gone back to the drawing board and come up with a new formula because that it doesn't tally for me. And it's not, I don't think it's what you should be trying to do if you're trying to rate a hundred years of tennis history. When it came to your, your, your upper crust, Jeff, how in the line was there between labor and grab. I mean, that's there's your top two. And labor was not nearly as consistent as Steffi week in, week out, obviously. But but his his he reached these dizzying heights and is the only player ever to win two grand slams, etc. So how thin was the gap between labor grab, Navratilova, Djokovic, Federer, your top five? What uh, was it exceedingly tight among those five? It was in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Um, Laver's peak is so much higher than any other man, at least according to my ratings. Just, just outrageous. I mean, it, it's it, in Elo terms, he's almost a hundred points higher at his peak than any other man, and that's that's enormous. Um, Graf is something like twenty points higher than Navratilova in their their peaks. So to, to give you an idea, so no one's touching Laver. I mean, people occasionally ask me if what does Djokovic have to do to to catch up with Laver on this list? Like, I mean, I don't know. Play, play another five years and win 12 more slams. I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's well, a lot. Jeff, Jeff, let me interrupt oh you a second. Yeah. Let me just interrupt you. It's one second. I get you on that. But as an example, with Djokovic by having just won the Australian, adding another major to his title, how much closer does that bring him to Navratilova as an example for three and four? Not too much. And going back to how the algorithm was constructed, I, like I said, there's those three pieces. One is the, the the player's peak. One is the player's best seven years. One is the career. All Djokovic is doing right now is padding the career. So it's really just one third of his rating. And that counts for something. But 
I mean, labor to graph is a big gap. Graph and Navratilova are very, very close. <laughs> um, they were, I looked really, really hard at that one and double checked all my numbers and, and on and on. And I mean, graph is, is solidly above Navratilova, but I mean, we're talking a sliver, but then Navratilova to Djokovic is pretty wide. Djokovic and Federer are pretty close. Um, I think Rafa and Chrissy were surprisingly close, which I thought was interesting, giving they're the respective clay goats of their, their tours. Um, after that, you've got a lot that are that are pretty close. But whether it's Djokovic or someone else who's padding their career totals, um, like I say, it only it only contributes to their to one third of their ratings unless they're setting a new standard. Unless Djokovic, you know, has an undefeated season or something and sets a new level for for peak play in the men's game. So it's unless Navratilova comes back and makes a makes another successful comeback, then uh, there's not much happening at the at the top of the list for a long time. Jeff, I want to I want to ask you how the algo uh, deals with with this, and then I'll pass it on to Steve for some final thoughts because we can talk about this for hours. This is fascinating stuff. Um, but something that Steve and I talked about, and and this is basically you can blame your parents for the year you were born. But four, five, and six uh, on the men's side during when Rafa, and Novak, and uh, and Fed were relatively all at their peaks, right? If you're fourth, fifth, and sixth in any industry, right, you're pretty damn good. But the top three, the big three, were so much better than four, five, and six. Did four, five, and six get penalized because they're not winning slams during this era versus four, five, and six in any other era? Probably could have won at least a few slams, right? It's it's the kind of like you're getting penalized for the year you're born, basically. Yeah, I mean, there's ways of of coming up with a yes and a no answer to that question. I mean, the, literally, no, they're not being penalized in the sense that it, going back to the, the percent of the matches they're playing. So somebody like David Ferrer, he played a lot of matches against the big three or the big four. I mean, lots of matches. It definitely hurt his career totals, no question. But still, he comes out as, what, 70 on my list, somewhere around there? Maybe not 70, 79. Um, so yeah. he's he's above a lot of slam winners. He's above a handful of multi-slam winners. He's above Leighton Hewitt, for example. Um, that's one of those cases where a lot of people thought I was maybe going a little bit bonkers with these numbers. So pe- whatever people thought was the appropriate number for Ferrer, it was lower than what I gave him. Um, I mean, Vavrinka, that's another one people have let me know what they think about, but Vavrinka has very little of a career, career record outside of his slams, outside of a few wins over Djokovic, and he ends up on this list. Um, so you can do very well. I think the way you answer that question with a big yes is to say that they would have developed differently otherwise. So, I mean, maybe if, if Nadal hadn't been there and Ferrer had gained some early confidence and, or if Nadal had just been a year or two later and Ferrer had broken through at the 05 or 06 French open and gotten that confidence, maybe developed it a little different game style or the game had evolved differently around him instead of around Rafa. I mean, you can imagine a lot of counterfactuals where Ferrer ends up as a great of the game or even Vavrinka does, or I would love it if we could have a counterfactual where Sanga was the, the great of the era. He was, he was my favorite of the also rands, but I don't know, like they had a lot of chances like Murray, for example, no one's going to say Murray's better than the rest than the big three. I mean, there's no debate there, but he did make it very clear that he's better than the rest of the pack and my yeah. algorithm put him in the top 30, which, I mean, again, is pretty aggressive compared to what I think most people expected. So you could, in the era of the big three, come up with an all-time great resume. The other guys didn't. I mean, the the field was open for Ferrer or Sanga or Vavrinka or Burdich or a half dozen other guys to do what Murray did. Um, 
and they didn't. So, I mean, if if Federer hadn't been there, it would have been easier, but they didn't. There's a whole right. bunch of there's a whole bunch of players that are pissed off at their parents for having them when they did. I can promise you that. No, it's <laughs> yeah. no, Jeff. The, the, the I, I feel like it's up to these players. I mean, for instance, David is a great admirer of Agassiz, and and Agassi and Sampras had an, an illustrious rivalry. But they played five major finals. Sampras wins four of them. So, I mean, to me, it, it's kind of up to you as a great player to deal with your opposition. It was up to Andy Murray if he wanted to be if he wanted it to be a genuine big four. And I know some people make that argument of a big four versus a big three, which I don't agree with. Then I think you have to put up the numbers. And what's interesting about Murray, Jeff, is that people forget that back in the 2012, he beat Murray in the Olympics, he beat, uh, I mean, Andy beat Novak in the Olympics. He beat him in uh, the U.S. Open final. And the next year he beat him in the Wimbledon final. So at that stage, he was faring rather well with Djokovic. It all changed uh, comprehensively after that. And and I just feel like same thing with Agassi and Sampras, same thing with Roddick and Federer. A lot of Roddick supporters felt like, look, if, if it wasn't for Roger, Andy would have won all kind well. But wasn't it up to Andy to step up? Did you look at that angle when you did your rankings in the, in your ELO system? I mean, not, again, not explicitly. Um, but I, what I what I was surprised, pleasantly surprised by when the rankings first uh, came up on my screen was how well some of those also ran sort of players do. And again, I'm using ridiculous terms like Rodison also ran. But <laughs> in in the way we're talking about it right now, I mean, he's he's not in the goat debate, and maybe he would have been if Federer hadn't come along when he did. Maybe he would have won four Wimbledon's in a row, maybe. But I think that the fact that he he only accomplished what he did meant that people would have expected him to be further outside of, of the top 100 or something on my list. And he wasn't. He's number 80 right next to Ferrer. So there's a lot of people on this list who won one slam or even zero slams who had that kind of talent. Maybe they came along at the wrong time or they were unlucky in major finals or whatever happened. Uh, I mean, to me, like the things we focus on, like the top line stats, slams, weeks at number one, maybe masters or the, the big head to heads, like they, they try to boil players' careers down to a small number of data points. And my approach is the opposite. My approach is saying we have a thousand data points on these guys. Like, okay, Roddick wasn't lucky that he came up at the same time as Federer did, but he didn't play that many matches against Federer. He lost them all, but he had a thousand other chances to establish his greatness. And he did. I mean, not as much as he could have, but he absolutely did. Same with Ferrer, same with Conchita Martinez with her bad birthday luck. Um, and <laughs> by using by using ELO, you can look at all thousand matches. And I mean, I don't think any any human brain, certainly not mine, can balance all that stuff and say, I'm going to look at Conchita's thousand matches and decide where she should rank. But a computer can't. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised by what my computer said about some of these players who had bad birthday luck and would have been better maybe in another era. But according to my my rankings, were pretty darn good anyway. Fascinating. Fascinating. Again, we could talk about this for hours, Steve. I mean, I, I, look, I, I could have so many more questions to ask, but I'll leave it to Steve um, for any, any final thoughts. No, I just would say I, I, I believe that this was very – it, it's a worthy discussion, and I, I'm glad the listeners had a chance to hear more from you. Some of them may have glanced at your rankings. Some of them may have examined them comprehensively, but I think they have a better, uh, a clearer idea now, our listeners do on this podcast, of how you went about your, your rankings and 
why why they evolved the way they did. And and I I do think that more, the fascinating thing to me about it is that there were so many similarities between your list and the tennis channel list of ten years ago in terms of the uh, of the top places, and that you somehow managed to to make it so equally balanced between men and women and the different eras. And that's what I think is the greatest testament to what you did is is the balance. And I commend you for that. Thanks. Incredible, Jeff. Thanks for your time. This this was great. Keep doing what you're doing. This was a, a ton of fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.